I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the deaths and unfolding devastation in Palestine and Israel. I apologize for not speaking up sooner. What's happening in Gaza and Israel right now is horrifying. My heart goes out to everyone who's being affected by this, which I know includes listeners of this podcast. I also want to state unequivocally that I stand against Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Gaza is now the deadliest place for civilians in the world. As of this recording, more than 10,000 lives have been lost in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, and more than 1.4 million people have been displaced in Gaza. People in Gaza are experiencing daily bombardment, severe hunger, dehydration, and a lack of medical care, not to mention the serious long-term mental health impacts of the violence on everyone, including children. I echo the calls from organizations like Doctors Without Borders, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, Save the Children, and the International Council of Nurses to call for immediate de-escalation and a ceasefire, for an end to the bombing of Gaza, for the safe release of the hostages, and for aid to be allowed to enter. How can we help? We can pay attention, share information about this situation, join protests, and contact our elected representatives to let them know we demand a ceasefire. I've put links in the show notes for more information about actions we can all take. If you have the means to do so, consider supporting organizations like MSF, Doctors Without Borders, and World Central Kitchen, which provide necessary help to places in need of medical care and food. The Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, PCRF, also provides medical and humanitarian relief. Save the Children is working to provide essential services and support. I have put links to these organizations in the show notes. Learning more about the history of this region can also help better understand what's going on today. 
Some podcasts that I recommend to listen to to learn about the history of this part of the world include The History of the Crusades, The Islamic History Podcast, Preoccupation and Not-So-Brief History of Palestine, and Head on History. Our editor, Christina Lumagi, did an episode of her podcast, Historia's Unknown, about this, and so has the podcast Jew Witches. I put links to all those podcasts in the show notes as well. There are also numerous books that go into depth about the history of the Levant, which is this region which I'm going to explain in one second. But if you want to read books on this topic and the history, I've put a link to a book list I made up in the show notes as well. So, the Levant. Today's episode takes place in a region that English-speaking historians and others refer to as the Levant. And so that's the term I'm going to use for this geographic region. This term, the Levant, was first used in English in 1497, referring to the east or Mediterranean lands east of Italy. I think it's technically a French word, Levant. French people, let me know. But in this instance, this refers to the direction of the east where the sun rises each day. From the western Mediterranean, the Levant was to the east where the sun rose and thus how it received its name. So this is a term that has been used and still is used to refer to different areas and different times throughout history. So first, it was a term used in reference to ancient lands along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Old Testament of the Bible. This region has also holds many important cities, like Jerusalem, Petra, Jericho, and Damascus. The modern-day Levant includes countries instead of kingdoms. These Levant countries include Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, parts of Syria, and western Jordan. Some people use a broader definition of this area that can include some or all of the following countries. Cyprus, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Greece, and Iraq. So if you picture just like on a map, that's the place we're talking about. The borders of the countries and regions we have now have all changed throughout time. But some of the oldest cities ever are in this area, and they often have the same name. So I'm mostly just going to be using city names in this episode, just to try and make it as clear as possible. So land in this part of the world has always been coveted because it's close to lots of water sources, which is good for agriculture. And so this often led to conflict over who controls the land. Also, it's some of the oldest cities in the world. So as long as there's been people, there's been people fighting about land. So... Yeah, this is one of the earliest places where agriculture developed. It's also a location that's strategically useful for trade. And then because some of the oldest civilizations started here, this is there's lots of religious sites there for many different religions. Yeah, and I wanted to do an episode that takes place in the region because it's in the news right now due to the current warfare. Because this whole podcast, like not this episode, but this whole podcast is really like, I want to learn about stuff. And after I do, I like to tell you about it. So I've been learning about a lot of stuff about this for myself, partially just to recontextualize the history of this region. Like it's more than just what's happening in the news. There's such a rich history to this whole area. So I've been reading and learning lots about the history of this. And I want to share with you some of what I've recently learned, including about a very interesting woman who lived in oldie times in this area. So in the usual vulgar history style, if you're not familiar with that, I'm skipping the details of major battles. There's a lot of battles in this story and I am skipping them because that is what I do. I like to focus on the personalities and the people and kind of try to imagine what it was like to be them and to live in that place. And in order to just focus on the story of the woman who we're talking about today. Also, I do want to state that while religion is incredibly important to everyone in the story, like it is in a lot of the episodes I do, religion is not a part of my life personally. So I'm really retelling the story in terms of people and what they did. And I'm hoping to do so as respectfully as possible for religious people. So today's story is about a woman who lived a very, very long time ago, whose name was Ismat Adin Katun. 
The references I used for this were Wikipedia, a book called The Crusades Through Arab Eyes by Amin Malouf, the book Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule by Catherine Pangonis, the book The Life and Legend of the Sultan Saladin by Jonathan Phillips, as well as an article from History.com explaining the Crusades. Because I think I said in an episode a long time ago, or maybe on Instagram, that this is a part of history that I have not really learned about before. But, you know, diving into this, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> and you're going to learn a lot of what I learned as well. So the woman we're talking about, Ismat Adin Katun, we don't know her um, given name. So this is like an honorific. It's similar to when we did previous episodes on Muslim women, um, Harem Sultan or Saida Al-Hura. Those are both honorific titles, not the actual given names that they have. So her name means purity of the faith. And then Katun means lady or noblewoman. So Ismat Adin Katun. So she's also aka sometimes Asimat. And she was born sometime in the mid 12th century. I have a whole spreadsheet of all the people that we've ever talked about on this podcast. And this is mostly for myself to be like, what time period are we looking at? Who else is around at this time? So this is like 500 years after Fredegund and Brunhild. It's towards the end of the life of Empress Matilda and about 200 years before Joanna of Naples. And those are the three closest people in time and date to her, but also they all have a connection to what her story includes, Ismat's, which is the Crusades. And the connection with Fredegund and Brunhild is that the Crusaders were aka the Franks, which Fredegund and Brunhild were part of the Frankish kingdoms. Empress Matilda's grandson, I want to say, grandsons were some of the people who were out doing the Crusades. Um, and then Joanna of Naples later was Queen of Jerusalem. So a little backstory here. The goddamn Crusades. So first of all, note, the Crusades. And I keep saying it like that because I'm putting it in air quotes because that's not the term I necessarily think of it as, but that's what it's known as to probably a lot of you. Anyway, so in the 11th century, when this all kind of started, um, Western Europe, so like what we think of as modern day, like England, France, Italy, Germany, was not very interesting to Islamic writers. So that the people living in and around the Levant area, they regarded their own culture, the Islamic culture is much more sophisticated and advanced, which it was due to their progressive achievements in science and the arts. Um, Muslims referred to Europeans as Franks, not because they were all from Fredegund and Brunhill's land, but just, I think it's kind of akin to Christopher Columbus. Was it Christopher Columbus or whoever referred to the indigenous people of the Americas as Indians? It's like somebody just kind of used that word and then everyone was just like, great, that's the word we're going to use. So as long as people just kind of called Europeans Franks, that's just the word they used. And so they saw the Franks, which is people from all these parts of Europe. They were seen as being really preoccupied with warfare and hunting they had a melancholy temperament, a general proneness to savagery. They're also seen as filthy, unhygienic, and treacherous. And you know what? They were. Like, myself, as a descendant of white European people, like, not wrong. This is not a wrong take. If you read the story of Fredegund and Brunhild, like, unhygienic and treacherous, like, yeah, they were constantly dying of dysentery, murdering each other. Correct. Correct. Islamic people of the past. So there's a writer named Al-Masudi who in the 10th century wrote about the Franks. And I'm going to put a quote here. And this is just like a read for the ages. And myself as a white person, 
I see myself in this and I respect this. (laughs) I respect this as a read. So quote, the power of the sun is weak among them because of their distance from it. Cold and damp prevail in their regions with snow and ice follow one another in endless succession. Their color is so excessively white that it passes from white to blue. Their skin is thin and their flesh thick. Their eyes are also blue, matching the character of their coloring. Their hair is lank and reddish because of the prevalence of damp mists. Their religious beliefs lack solidity, and this is because of the nature of cold and the lack of warmth. And I'm going to say, as a red-haired, blue-eyed person with alarmingly pale skin, correct. That is, that is me. Anyway, so we've got this very sophisticated, cultured region with um, Islamic rulers, and we've got like the Franks up in Europe just kind of being the messes that we know from the Fredigan story. There's also another group that I haven't talked about, which is the Byzantine Empire, which is like, I can't explain everything today because I didn't have time to learn it all myself. But that's like kind of another group. And that's kind of like more to the Eastern Europe. Anyway, November 1095. The Pope called upon Western Christians to take up arms, like their swords, to aid the Byzantines in their war against Muslim countries in order to capture these lands. So these lands in the Levant, which were places where... Bible stuff happened. The Bible took place in a lot of these areas. Jesus was there. And a lot of these places were at that time under Muslim control. So the Christians in Europe were were like, great, let's do this. This is the Crusades. And they were a major thing at the time to the Europeans. As European history went on, it was like a thing people talked about and remembered as this major thing. And what I appreciate about this, and I got a lot, I told you my references. There's this book, The Crusades Through Arab Eyes by Amin Malouf. And as a person who hadn't read about the Crusades before, I really learned a lot of things from that book and from his point of view, which is basically, this was the thing that was important to the Franks and to the Islamic world. They're just like, okay, like it just was sort of more battles among many battles because like anywhere on earth, like the episode about Malincine, if you will recall, Hernan Cortez and the Spanish came to Mexico and they kind of came in and there were one more group of people, like the people, like the Nawa people who were living in that region had all different factions and groups and alliances already. And so the Spanish came and they were just kind of one more group. It's not like all the indigenous people of Mexico were all together because they were all at war with each other. Because like I said before, as long as there's been people, they've been fighting over land. So all these Muslim countries weren't like, yay, we're all the Muslim countries and we're all great. Like, no, they were, you know, had different alliances and stuff against each other as well. So then the Crusaders came, and so the writer Jonathan Phillips wrote that most Muslims saw the Crusades as just another invasion among many in their history. And if we look at contemporary accounts written by Islamic people, like during the time of the Crusades, they did not recognize any religious or military motive for the Crusaders, who were simply viewed as arriving from nowhere before wreaking havoc upon Muslims. And the fact that this was like the Pope sent them on this religious crusade and like the Muslims, like the Islamic people themselves didn't realize that there was or recognize the religious significance just kind of shows how this kind of wasn't really about religion in my perspective. So, I mean, just to be clear, the Crusaders were just like, like um, every, all the ships of white people coming over to the Americas or doing colonization anywhere. Like they were just shitty people. And a lot of them, there's sort of this sort of stereotype that it was like the younger sons of families like because the older sons had to stay behind to be the kings or like to inherit the land and the younger sons were just kind of like bored and so this was just sort of like a little fun thing for them to do and some of the stuff I read was like you know it wasn't just that but also I kind of feel like it kind of was just that 
Anyway, so there's all these different groups of crusaders, and they also weren't united with each other. There was different factions within factions. There was one group led by a guy called Count Emiko or Emicho, which was especially heinous, a case for the SVU squad. Under his, his group of crusaders carried out a series of massacres of Jewish people in various towns, drawing widespread outrage. So when you're like, you're too murderous for even the Crusaders, this is like a Catalina de Arauso moment of like, look at your life, look at your choices. Anyway, this caused a major crisis in Jewish-Christian relations. So this first bunch of Crusaders, their big focus was Jerusalem, the city. They wanted to claim the city for themselves, for Western Christians, um, because of its connection with the story of Jesus. I want to say I was raised Christian, but I haven't interacted with that vibe in a very long time. And I don't know what happened in what cities, but apparently Jerusalem is a city where he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. So like important to Christian people. There's also other stuff happened in Jerusalem to other religions, but I'm just saying for the crusaders, this is what their connection to it was. Um, They headed down and in 1099, the crusaders captured Jerusalem and pretty quickly, more quickly than they expected, because they came in with all these just like messy ass tactics. Um, They massacred almost all of the Muslim and Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then they proclaimed this the capital of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And so they elected a guy called Godfrey of Bouillon, the Godfrey of soup cubes, was elected Lord of Jerusalem, but then he died. And so then they offered the lordship to his brother Baldwin, a shockingly 21st century sounding name in the middle of this story from a thousand years ago. Anyway, and so on Christmas Day, in the Basilica of Bethlehem, he became the new, I think it's King, I think he's called King Baldwin of Jerusalem. Anyway, so the Crusaders were like, we did what we wanted, so now we're done, and we'll go back home now, I guess, which is what a lot of them done. But because it went so well, the Christian authorities, which I think means the Pope, were like, that went well, let's like do Crusades 2.0. Let's do some more Crusades. So the Second Crusade began in 1147, which is about like 50 years later. This crusade went badly for the Franks due to the Islamic kingdoms being more prepared and kind of knowing what was up. And one of the people who was extremely successful in this and a really powerful military commander who made the Franks not do well was Ismat's dad. So let's talk about her and him and who they were. So today's main character, Ismat al-Din Khatun, was one of three daughters of Muin ad-Din Unur who was the regent of Damascus, which was a city then, which is basically where it still is now, um, in modern day Syria, Damascus. Fun fact, if you watch Forged by Fire, the TV show about people doing blacksmithing, canister Damascus is a method they use sometimes. But also, that's why I first heard the word, but the city of Damascus. And I don't know its connection to canister Damascus. Blacksmiths, let me know. Anyway, the old city of Damascus is considered to be among the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. They did excavations on the outskirts of the city, which show that it was inhabited as early as like 10,000 BCE. 10,000 BCE. That's earlier than anyone we've ever talked about on this podcast. I am fairly confident, but let me double check. Yeah, even Nefertiti, the longest ago person we've ever talked about. That was like 1300 BCE. When I talk about like these are some of the oldest civilizations, it's like the oldest civilizations, like full stop. The archaeology findings there are incredible. So anyway, her dad, Ismet's dad, was probably originally from what we would think of today as modern day Armenia or Turkey, where he was taken in kind of in a harem sultan type thing. If you've heard that episode, we did this podcast before, 
where um, people would be taken from there and then they would be enslaved. And the way that men were enslaved sometimes was as like mercenaries. So they were put in the army, but then you kind of, there was a structure where you could move up in the army, even though you entered it being against your will enslaved. Anyway, and that's what happened to him. And he was really good at being army guy. He's a really good military leader. And so he was assigned the position of regent of Damascus. And so one of his colleagues was a man named Nur al-Din, who ruled one of the nearby Syrian provinces. And they were sort of like, I don't want to say frenemies, but they were just kind of like, let's be in an alliance, but also let's be kind of suspicious of each other and like ready for one of the other ones to like do something fishy. It was her dad, Ismat's dad's policy to remain on friendly terms with his neighbors whenever possible, whether they're Christian or Muslim. So these guys were like, okay with each other. And so they negotiated an alliance in 1147. I think I said that's the year that the Second Crusade started. So coincidence or that's why. Anyway, in this alliance, this formalized alliance, Nur ad-Din, who is this frenemy, it was arranged that he would marry Ismat al-Din Khatun, today's main character. And so like so many marriages in history and that we've talked about this podcast, like it was really just to show a way to formalize, like we actually fuck with each other. Sorry, not literally. We're two places and we're like so committed to working together that we have like become a family together. And so the majority of sources claim that Nur ad-Din and Ismat ad-Din Khatun's marriage was strictly paperwork only in the sense of like, they probably never even met each other, let alone consummated this marriage. So this was very much just like on paperwork only. Like I feel like they lived in different cities their whole lives, which his life is going to end pretty soon. So this is where like, we don't know, was she a child at this time when this marriage was arranged or was it, we don't know her age basically, but so she's married, but kind of like not really asterisks. Anyway, so she remained at home because she like was not in the same city as her husband. Did she know that this paperwork had been signed? Unclear. Anyway, so her husband and her dad went out on military campaigns together against the Franks. At one point, Nur ad-Din, her husband, and I just like to highlight this, is like quite a thing to do. He marched all the way to the coast and expressed his dominance of Syria by symbolically bathing in the Mediterranean, which is like high drama. It's camp. I love it. And so her husband, Nur ad-Din, his dream was to unite the various Muslim forces between the Euphrates and the Nile to make a common front against the Crusaders. Um, but like I said before, like all these places <laughs> that have been around for like 10,000 years, like there's a lot of like people who work together, people who don't like working together. Um, so it's quite a challenge to try and get them all to team up together. But Nur ad-Din, convincing person, he managed to unite the major cities of Mosul and Aleppo, which are both still cities today, under his rule. So the third prong of this, the part that like he needed to have under his rule as well to make it all be one united thing was Damascus, which is the place that Ismat's dad was the regent of. At around this time, her dad died of dysentery and he was buried in a university he had founded. And I mentioned that just because sometimes I forget how old the concept of a university is. Anyway. So her brother took over as regent of Damascus, but this is the same sort of thing we often see where somebody's a strong ruler and then they're like, useless son becomes regent and is like not good. Anyway, so her brother was soon overthrown by her husband, awkward, Nur ad-Din, but now he had Damascus. So at the, from this point on, all of Syria was unified under the authority of Nur ad-Din. And then King Baldwin of Jerusalem, I don't know if it's the same King Baldwin, now it's says King Baldwin III. So two more Baldwins, <laughs> like um, Alec Baldwin has all those children. 
So King Baldwin III of Jerusalem died. And out of respect for such a formidable opponent, Ismat's husband, Nur ad-Din, refrained from attacking. You know what? Good on him. So there's a chronicler who's from the Franks. He's named William of Tyre. And he reported Nur ad-Din said, we should sympathize with their grief and in pity spare them because they have lost a prince such as the rest of the world does not possess today. Cool of him. So Nur ad-Din just kept kind of like bringing together more of these Muslim territories, conquering more places, including Egypt. Um, and then he believed, you know, a job done. Like he had accomplished his goal of uniting the Muslim states. But then he was seized by fever due to complications from what sounds like tonsillitis. He died aged 56 in 1174 in Damascus, leaving Ismat Adin Khatun, a widow for a man she never met. So he died. And then, unlike how he was like, this is cool, Baldwin died, I won't attack. Baldwin's successor, King Amalric of Jerusalem, was like, he just died, then I'll attack. So he decided to besiege the city of Banias, where Ismat seems to have been living at the time. So a bit about Banias. This is a site, there's, it's kind of cliffs, kind of mountains um, in the Levant called Golan Heights. So at this point, this was one of these extremely old cultures, not 10,000 years old, but a thousand years, like Banias, the city had been lived in for a thousand years. The ruins are actually still there. Um, the ancient city was mentioned in the Bible when it was AKA Caesarea Philippi. And so the significance of this to Christian people is this is the place where Jesus confirmed Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah. This location was abandoned and destroyed in 1967 as part of the Six Day War which is a thing you can Google if you'd like to learn more about that. We're focusing on much centuries earlier than that, but just to show how long the city was around for. Um, the site today is a place of pilgrimage for Christians and presumably was at this time too for all these Jesus-related reasons. And that's why Amalric wanted to take over. But Ismat Adin Katun was like, try me, bitch. So she didn't say bitch. She was just like, try me. A geographer called Ibn Jubayr... He was a traveler and poet from Al-Andalus. Remember, that's kind of modern day Spain. He described Banias, the city, and kind of like why it was important and what it was like at that time. The city is a frontier fortress of the Muslims. It is small, but has a castle round which under the walls flows a stream. The stream flows out from the town by one of the gates and turns a mill. Commanding the town is a fortress called Hunin, which lies three leagues distant from Banias. And our correspondent, William of Tyre, who note, in general, not a fan of Muslims, not a fan of women, not a fan of Muslim women, but wrote really good things about Ismat, which is how you know she's pretty cool, to impress even him. So he wrote that Ismat, with courage beyond that of most women, sent a message to this king demanding that he abandon the siege and grant them a temporary peace. She promised to pay a large sum of money in return. So this is Ismat negotiating like Emma Amalric is trying to take over this place Banias and Ismat is like how about diplomacy so Amalric in the hope of extorting a larger bribe at first pretended to spurn her plea and continued the siege so for about 15 days he continued this is William of Tyre writing with vigor and zeal and caused his foe great trouble with his siege engines and in various other ways Finally, he perceived that the ability of the Turks to resist was steadily increasing and began to realize he had no chance of success. Meanwhile, Ismat's envoys kept insistently demanding peace. He finally decided to accept the proffered money, and on the release of 20 captive Christian knights in addition, he raised the siege 
with the intention of undertaking greater projects later. So, I mean, this is why I want to talk about Ismat Adin Katun, because all this stuff's happening. She was born when the Crusades were happening. Her dad was a big guy in the Crusades. She was married to this like main crusade or, well, I guess anti-crusade. Anyway, she was living among all this war and she was so clever, like the diplomacy, the peacefulness of this, like this is kind of the role that women have in a lot of cultures and societies where they're seen as like the peacemakers or the peacekeepers. And she really demonstrated how that can be such a powerful thing to do. Like he was trying to siege and through diplomacy, she got him to not to just call the siege, like not using, not leading army, not, you know, like just using her soft skills, quote unquote. So from this anecdote, we can glean some things about what she was like. She was noble. She was courageous. Certainly she was determined. And also on the way back after giving up the siege, like she got to keep Banias. King Amalric fell ill from dysentery, which turned into a fever. William of Tyre wrote about how he died, which is, after suffering intolerably from the fever for several days, he ordered physicians of the Greek, Syrian, and other nations noted for skill and diseases to be called and insisted they give him some purgative remedy. But they couldn't fix this, and he died. So, Nora Dean's former general. So this is her husband. No, her husband died, then the siege, then Amalric died. And so her dead husband's former general was a guy called Saladin, who had by now taken over Egypt. And he claimed that he, because remember Nur ad-Din had taken Damascus as one of his last places. So Saladin was like, great, I'm his successor. And so now I'll be in charge of Damascus. And he did exactly what um, Nur ad-Din had done. And he legitimized his claim by marrying Ismat ad-Din Kadun in 1176. So like for the exact same reason, just showing like, you know, like we're going to combine these families. Like I'm family to this place now because I just married her. Like the other guy did the exact same thing. These two actually met each other. And just to make this all a little complicated a little bit, or not complicated, but just sort of like, okay. So Ismet Adin's marriage with Saladin was proclaimed as her first marriage. I mean, to be fair, she didn't meet the first husband. Um, this is publicly proclaimed as her first marriage. And people didn't know about her marriage with Nur ad-Din until he had died. So it's all just kind of like, was that even a marriage? Unclear. Anyway, so this is a quote from the book, Queens of Jerusalem by Catherine Pangonis. Isma ad-Din Khatun was married to the two greatest warlords of the medieval Muslim Middle East. She was the companion and confidant of two of the most impressive and powerful men of her generation and must have had a unique understanding of the two leaders who shaped the fate of Islam in the Levant. She is a figure of great historical significance despite the lack of information available about her personality, her appearance, and her life. So this is like the main thing we know about her was how she used diplomacy to call off the siege. But we're going to read between the lines and talk a little bit more about her second husband, kind of her first husband, um, Saladin. Because one of the things we know is that he wrote to her every day when they were apart. So he was very fond of her. Clearly, and who is this guy? Saladin. So, full name Salah Adin Yusuf ibn Ayyub, commonly known as Saladin. He was born around 1137 and was probably, therefore, of similar age to Ismat, probably. Um, he was from a Kurdish family born in Tikrit in present day Iraq. So, we know his personal name was Yusuf. Um, Salah Adin, aka Saladin, is his honorific, it means righteousness of the faith. So he wasn't enslaved to begin with. He was from a military family and he kind of like grew 
went up in the ranks of the military just by being good at it. This is where I'm going to be like not going into the details of all the battles, but no, there were several and he did very well in them. Um, by mid-1175, he was proclaimed Sultan of Egypt and Syria, and he was so successful, he was a frequent target by some people called the Assassins. This is just, side note, I can't not tell you about this. So, in this time, um, and starting a couple hundred years before this time, in the mountains of this region, there was a group of people, an order of people, you might say, and their whole deal was being spies slash murderers basically. So over the course of nearly 300 years, they killed hundreds of people. The modern term assassination is stemming from the tactics used by the assassins. Like that's the name of their group. And now it describes the kind of stuff they did, but that was also the name of their group. It's an Arabic word. So I have in the past, in a silly way, claimed that Fredigand invented assassination. In fact, so she did introduce the concept to medieval Francia, um, literally this group, the assassins, literally invented assassins. And the Western world was introduced to the concept of assassins by the works of Marco Polo, who was a person, not just a game to play. Marco Polo was a Venetian guy who lived a hundred years after all this stuff happened. Anyway, the assassins, like Fredigand, their preferred method of killing was by dagger, nerve poison, or arrows. And they kept trying to kill Saladin and he kept outsmarting them. And that makes me like him even better. And also them. So, but then we've got 1186. Ismet Adin Katun died during a plague epidemic. So maybe of plague. She might have also died from maybe tuberculosis, some sort of illness-based thing. Saladin was off at this time on military campaign, writing her letters every day as he always did when they were apart. He was actually recovering from his own lengthy illness at the same time. Maybe plague also? I don't know. Anyway, but this is where we kind of learn by reading between the lines a few more things about Ismat. So his advisors knew that once he learned that she had died, he would be so affected that it might affect his own recovery from illness. So they concealed the news from him for three months that she uh, was dead. So he continued to write her long letters every day. Um, and then they had to go through and censor the letters being sent to him in case somebody mentioned that she was dead because they just didn't want him to know. And this is the sort of thing where you like, she was clearly so important to him. Like, and they knew that she was so important to him. The fact that they hid her death, like this is, we don't know a lot about her, but we know a lot about him. And we know that she was clearly so important to him. He was involved with other women as well, but he was not writing any of them letters every day. Um, so she seems to be the woman most cherished by him. Seems pretty certain that they did not have any children. I feel like how often were they even in the same city? It was a letter-based relationship. Um, he did have children with some of his other partners. One of his children was a daughter named Munisa Katun. And some people think maybe that was Ismat's daughter, but probably was not. A year after Ismat died, um, Saladin led his army in the Battle of Hatin, in which he defeated the Crusaders and he reestablished Muslim military dominance in this region. And then he died in 1191 in Damascus. And his possession at the time of his death was only one piece of gold and 40 pieces of silver. So even though he was really successful and he was the sultan of all these areas, he had given away his great wealth to his poor subjects, um, leaving nothing to pay for his funeral. He was buried in a mausoleum in the garden outside the Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, Syria, which is going to be a whole thing, let me tell you, in a second. So 
Despite the like religious differences and the fact they're always at war against each other, Saladin was respected by the Christians, um, including Richard the Lionheart, who was the son of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is played by Anthony Hopkins in the movie The Lion in Winter. He's also the main king in Disney's Robin Hood movie. His brother, Prince John, is the one who sexes them. Anyway, Richard the Lionheart, famous crusader. So he once praised Saladin as a great prince, saying he was without doubt the greatest and most powerful leader in the Islamic world. Saladin, in turn, stated there is not a more honorable Christian lord than Richard. Saladin and Richard sent each other many gifts as tokens of respect, but never met face to face. As a result of the Crusades, which went on for like hundreds of years, so at first, all these people are coming down from Europe to the Levant and there like wasn't roads, um, but so it really built up more infrastructure so people could go back and forth, which affected trade. Roads improved. Um, the cultures had more to do with each other. There's a whole thing I've been reading recently about how there's a pattern that you see often on Christmas sweaters and things. It's like an eight pointed star. I always thought it was a snowflake, but it's actually a motif from Palestinian artwork and craftspersonship. And the reason that this symbol, it's called the Star of Bethlehem, came to Europe and now it's so sort of omnipresent in like Christmas sweaters is because of this, like from this Crusades era, just sort of like these artistic motifs and stuff just moved around as people were exposed to other cultures. Anyway, so this also resulted in increase in shipbuilding, the manufacturing of various supplies. This ongoing hundreds of years of on-off wars had other effects as well, culturally. Okay, so Saladin's tomb, 1898, hundreds of years later. Emperor Wilhelm II of Germany, who is the grandson of Queen Victoria, note he's the eldest of her 42 grandchildren. She had a lot of children. He donated a new marble sarcophagus to Saladin's mausoleum. I read that and I was like, why would he do that? As I mentioned before, the Crusades were not a big thing (laughs) Like at the time they were happening, it's just kind of like, okay, these guys come and they, there's like war sometimes. But like in terms of Arabic and Turkish history, it was described in one book as a small blip on a very large radar screen. So this changed. Like Saladin himself was not like a super big hero for hundreds and hundreds of years because the Crusades were not really a big deal in Islamic history. But the Crusades were such a big deal to like the West, right? And so Wilhelm is the grandson of Queen Victoria. I'm sure in England, they've talked a lot about the Crusades. Oh, and she's from Germany, right? So her husband is from Germany. So anyway, it was all really built up to like Western European people. And so he was really into it. And he thought Saladin sounded like this great hero. In fact, the first Arabic language history of the Crusades wasn't published until 1899, coincidentally the same year that Wilhelm was on a tour of the Middle East. And he was a fan of this whole thing of Saladin, so he wanted to see that tomb. And what he found shocked him. A neglected, crumbling, and forgotten wooden tomb tucked away in a small outbuilding of a garden beside the great mosque of Damascus. And I wonder if the tomb was really modest because of he didn't have money and Saladin was kind of like a humble person. Anyway, and Wilhelm had been raised on romantic tales like Sir Walter Scott's The Talisman, which was an 1825 tale of the Crusades, And he basically worshipped the concept of Saladin. So he paid for a new mausoleum out of his own pocket, um, which was a beautiful marble tomb in the medieval style with a scrollwork that has a Byzantine flourish. On a bronze wreath, he inscribed, from one great emperor to another. So what was he even doing there? Why was the Kaiser of Germany in the Levant? So this was actually his second tour of that region, which was meant to strengthen friendly relations between Turkey 
and Germany. Why were they doing that? Because the Berlin to Baghdad railway was being prepared and Germany was really focusing on these cultures working better together. The Ottoman Empire is what I'm calling Turkey. The books I read have various names for various places. Anyway, so the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire would eventually be plunged both into World War I on the same side, which was the side that lost World War I, which effectively ended all of these empires entirely, which is a story for another day. World War I, not a thing I will probably be talking about on this podcast very often. But anyway, Saladin, his body was never moved into the stone sarcophagus, which has instead been placed next to the old one in today's refurbished shrine. So the mausoleum, now open to visitors, has the two sarcophagi, the marble one on one side and the original wooden one on the other side. Ismad Adin Khatun do not know where she was buried. But yeah, that's this little bonus episode. I just really wanted to bring some attention to this region of the world and the rich, 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 rich history that it has and the strength of this Muslim woman. Um, the power of diplomacy and peacefulness. I just thought it's a story that I really wanted to share, given everything that is going on in that region of the world right now. As I said at the beginning, there's tons of links in the show notes of podcasts to listen to, books to read, organizations you can support. And I hope you're all doing really well. And yeah, this is a bonus episode. I won't get into all the reminders of all the things. I just want to let you all know that I'm thinking about you. I know there's listeners all over the world who are affected by what's going on right now. And I'm thinking about you. My heart is with you. And until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.